Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in our series on the book of Luke, and you guys are here on, on the July long weekend, so blessings on you. There are extra blessings for those of you who came to church uh, today. All right, so... Luke chapter 20, we're working our way through the book of Luke, and I'm going to read to you the first eight verses here of chapter 20, the authority of Jesus being challenged, and, and, uh, and then we'll work our way through. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. I love, I love Jesus. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, speaking of John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, as you can see that these were very popular leaders of the people, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So this passage is all about authority. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders are coming to Jesus and they're saying, where on earth, how, like, where do you get the right? Where do you get the authority to do the things you're doing? Now, of course, they're asking this question from a bad place. They hate Jesus. They don't believe in him. They're against him. This is not a, a challenge coming out of a good heart. This is a challenge coming out of a bad heart. But leaving that aside, it's actually not a bad question. What gives you the right to do these things that you're doing? If Jesus isn't God, he actually doesn't have a right to do the things he's doing or say the things he's saying. What authority? Who has given you this authority? So, yes, their question is coming from a bad place. They're challenging Jesus because they, they hate him and they, and they want to kill him and all that. But actually, it's a good question because society runs on authority. If there's no authority, you have chaos. Okay? It's not, I, I really want to get that through uh, this weekend is... The question itself is not bad, and it's a question, actually, that needs to be answered. Any society where there's not, uh, you know, authority is going to be a society, as I said, that's going to be in chaos, for example. And this applies to every little area of, of life, okay? Uh, if I went to a, a Bombers game uh, this year, and, and that probably wouldn't be that great of a thing this year, but anyway, uh, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but uh, if I went to a Bombers game this year, I would not have the authority, isn't that true, to just leave the stands and walk onto the field, you know, take out a megaphone or something and speak to the, to the other spectators there. I, I wouldn't have that authority. They would cart me off very quickly, tackle me, whatever, and, and pull me off the field. And that's a good thing because I don't have the authority. Nobody's given me the authority to go onto that field and, and speak. Uh, nobody's given me authority. I couldn't just walk into a school, and that's a good thing. I couldn't just walk into any old school and just walk into a school and open up a classroom and send the teacher out and start teaching the the students there. Nobody's given me that authority, right? There's a lot. I can't just walk into the legislative buildings uh, there in in Winnipeg and walk in while the MLAs are all in session and, you know, tell them all to be quiet and I'm going to address you and I want to pass a couple of laws or whatever. I don't have that authority. I get arrested. And And that's good because... If you, without authority, without structures like that, we have chaos. Now, in order to have authority like that, you have to, it has to be given to you. As human beings, we don't just have authority in us. It has to be given to you. Even whatever little amount of authority I have here at this church was given to me by the board and the, and, and the staff. 
okay, to be the preacher here. So here I have some authority. I can come up here. I can speak. I can lead. I can do those sorts of things. But it was given to me. Okay, even, even kings and queens from old, we human beings don't just have authority in us. Even kings and queens of, of old who were born into their, their position of royalty, even there the, the, royal, the authority is given to them by virtue of their birth into their family and they get it from their, their father or their mother. Even uh, powerful, wicked men in the past who have taken authority you know, by use of force with armies or whatever have to be given Something at some point to have authority over that army to use whatever it is. We always have authority given to us. But the interesting thing, and this passage is all about authority, is that when these chief priests and scribes and elders come to Jesus and say, where did you get their authority? They're talking to the one exception. They're talking to the one exception. The rest of us all have to be given authority to have any authority. But the one they're talking to is the creator of the universe. He is authority. He has all the authority. He's the ultimate authority. Nobody needs to give it to him. He made everything that is. And we see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus' authority is a, is a huge theme throughout the Gospels. When he speaks to a demon, it just leaves. When he speaks to the weather and says, be quiet, it quiets. When he, even when he talks about his, his own life and death, you know, fascinating, John chapter 10, I'm just going to show you a couple of passages here, fascinating, the amount of authority, we just have to see here who they're, they don't realize who they're talking to. Their, their question coming from a bad place, but not a bad question, but the one they're asking, um, who has given you this authority, he is the one who has authority. Look at how Jesus talks about his own death, if you want to talk about authority, he has authority over life and death. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 17, for this reason... The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Look at this. No one takes it from me. No one, no one takes Jesus' life from him. Okay? But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Now, that's the only person in history that could ever say this. You take the most powerful people in all of history with the biggest armies, the most power, whatever it is, no human being has ever had power over death. No matter how powerful a human being you are or you were or, you ha or has been, Every one of them succumbs to death at some point. And Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down. I'll die only when I say I'm going to die if I want to die. And then he says, and I have authority to take it up again. And then after I die, I have authority over death. I'm just going to raise myself back up again. That is authority. Okay, they, these, these, these chief priests and, and scribes and elders, they don't know who they're talking to when they say, who gave you this authority? I even love, I just have to go there because some of these rabbit trails are just fun for me. Um, Pontius Pilate, in his discussion, uh, you know, he's talking with Jesus before the crucifixion. And he's peppering Jesus with questions. And one of the interesting things that we're going to come to later in this message is that it's amazing to me how many times in the Gospels Jesus in his sovereignty just sometimes doesn't want to answer questions. And so Pontius Pilate is asking him question after question after question, and Jesus, the king of the universe, just doesn't feel the need to answer them, and he just stands there. And Pontius Pilate has never seen anything like it, because Pontius Pilate is used to being the one in charge. And people are afraid of him, especially people who are being accused in such a way that they could end up on the cross. He's used to people begging, hey, please, their, their accusations are lies. Don't, don't crucify me, please, have mercy on me. He's used to people begging and pleading and arguing and yelling and anything to convince him. And so he's shocked that Jesus just stands there. And so he has a discussion with Jesus about authority too. He says this. So Pilate said to him, this is John chapter 19, you won't speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority? There's that word authority again. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He says, to Jesus, like, why wouldn't you answer me? I have the power, I have the authority to let you go or I have the power of the authority to put you on the cross. If anybody, you should be talking to me. And up to this point, Jesus has just been standing there not answering his questions, but he can't let this one go. He can't let this one go. And so he says to Pilate, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You, you only have authority because you got it from me. And you got it from my father. You would have no authority. You look like you're the one in authority in this situation, but you're just my puppet right now. I'm determined to die, and I'm not going to let you let me off the hook. I'm going to the cross whether you like it or not. Unless it had been given you from above, therefore he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus' authority is intrinsic and all-encompassing. Now, I do want to just show you one verse, because some of you are going to pick this out. Uh, uh, Jesus has, he's the ultimate authority. He has, intrinsically has authority, because who he is, he's just God, and he made everything that exists. There is an interesting mi uh, mystery here, before we go back to, uh, to Luke 20, and the chief, chief priests and, and elders and stuff. There is an interesting mystery throughout the New Testament that we see that even though Jesus is God, and even though Jesus is intrinsic to himself as all authority in the universe, that he somehow still submits to the Father. It's fascinating to me. And there's some mystery here, and I can hardly wait to heaven to, to finally get to meet God face to face, amen, and to know him in the, in the Trinity but Jesus says this in Matthew 28, and there's many other passages like that. That's why I couldn't leave this section without just making a note of this mystery. I can't say much about it other than that it is a mystery, but Matthew 28, and Jesus came, to them, and came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth, so there it is, he's got all authority on heaven and earth, has been given to me. So somehow Jesus, who is God, and who is authority, and who made all that is, somehow still speaks about the Father in this sense of the Father giving him his authority. So there's some mystery there, and it's amazing, and we can wonder at it, and we can worship him. Um, but in the meantime, the Jewish leaders are challenging Jesus. And they're saying, where on earth did you get this authority? Who gave you this authority? Now, because of the chapter breaks in our Bibles, we often, you know, you read a chapter or two for your devotions, and then the next day you pick up the next chapter, and that's totally fine. It works well. But, when, but those chapters weren't there. As I've said many times before, those chapters weren't there when the authors of Scripture were, were writing the Scriptures. And so sometimes what happens when we break up the chapters is we, we miss the continuity that, that what happened in the verses right before are flowing right into the verses next. So when they ask him this question about authority, a lot of people aren't connecting it to the chapter before. And so a lot of people wonder, what exactly are they asking him about? Like, what does this have to do? Does this have to do with his teaching? Well, certainly it's a little bit about that. Like, who gave you the authority to teach these things? Certainly it would include that. But the thing you have to understand is that there is something very specific that has set them off asking this question. Something very specific that he did right before, right, right, in, and again, there was no chapter breaks in the original, that happened right before this situation that this situation is coming out of, that's right at the end of our chapter 19. And in this incident, Jesus has publicly, openly, brazenly challenged their authority in one of the most probably embarrassing and humiliating ways he could have. And out of that challenge, they are now asking him, who gave you this authority? And I'm going to go back to it. It's just the last uh, few verses of Luke chapter 19. And it's his story, starting in verse 45. 
And he, that's Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Okay, so this is that famous story where Jesus goes into the temple and physically drives the merchants and stuff out of, out of the temple. Okay, so famous story. But I want us just to stop and think about it for just a moment. I'm going to show you why this is such a big challenge to their authority. Too often we just glaze these stories. That's one of, that's one of my jobs as a preacher is to try to bring the, the scriptures and open them up in such a way that we're not just, gl- just glazing over them. So we just think, oh yeah, huh, yawn, he drove everybody out of the temple. Have you ever stopped to think of what that must have looked like? Like this was a very physical encounter, okay? And I know, you know, we're in, in Mennonite country here, and I have a Mennonite last name, so I'm allowed to make comments like this. But Jesus was no pacifist, okay? This was no passive-aggressive going to the temple and say, boy, I don't really like what these merchants are doing and hope they get the hint and leave. <laughs> that would be a Mennonite thing to do, and it's not what Jesus did. <laughs> he didn't walk into the temple and say, could you please leave? It says he drove them out. Now, you have to remember, there were guards in the temple, okay? He went in there. There will have been blows. In, in John, there's a story of him cleansing the temple, uh, which some people, there's debate, was that a second time he did it, or was it the same time? But whatever the case, at least one of the times he went to the temple, he made a whip out of cords. He, there was hitting. There was shoving. There was throwing, okay? So you have to see Jesus. You go, that was Jesus? Yes. And we have to get rid of, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to say that. I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to leave that one for just now. But anyway, he went in there physically and he drove them out. Now, the thing you have to understand is this is not the equivalent. Sometimes people think of this as the equivalent because there's many parallels between the, the temple and the church. And sometimes people think of this as, you know, this is sort of like be the equivalent of if someone came into our church, into the cafe and turned over a few tables and scared a few people out of the church. And that is not at all what this would have been like. I know that there are many parallels between the temple and the church, but there are also many huge differences between a local church today and what the temple was like then in terms of practical terms. Uh, see, the thing you have to understand is the temple, I mean, they had synagogues in all the different towns and cities of, of Jerusalem where people, which were sort of kind of like the precursors of what, like, what the church is today. The synagogues were, were kind of more like what, a, what church service would be like today. But the temple, was, that's where, that was the center of their worship of God. That was where the sacrifice had to happen, for the whole nation. It was the center for the nation of, of the, the Jewish religious life, for the whole nation, and all the Jews around the world. Jews would come, thousands and thousands and thousands of them for things like the Passover, would come from all over the world to Jerusalem um, at various times, because it was the center. So the people who were in charge of the temple had very real power, religious power, but they had more than religious power. They had political power. These guys had their own soldiers. Like, I, if you came in here and, and turned over a few chairs, uh, we would pray for you and, and ask you to leave, and the ushers might, uh, you know, try to hustle you out. Maybe I don't know what would all happen. Uh, let's not try it and see, all right? But anyway, um, but I have no power. I have no real power over any of you. You all come here uh, voluntarily. You could go to a different church. You could leave right now and go to a different church. Uh, I don't think it's a great option, <laughs> just because I'm a little biased. But uh, you could go to a different church next week, right? You could do whatever you want. This was the temple. This is the only place they could go. And the, the, the chief priest could arrest you and do all kinds of bad things. The, 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 the Romans had taken away their power to kill, but everything else they could do. So they had very real power. So when you think of Jesus going to the temple, 
This is not just him going into a local church and causing a little chaos. He's going right into the central place of, of religious and political power in, in the Jewish nation, okay? That's really important. So there isn't a very good parallel. There isn't an exact parallel anywhere in Canada. But I'll share with you just an analogy. It's a very imperfect analogy. It's a very imperfect parallel. But just to give you a little bit idea what this would be more like than coming into a church would be like, imagine if someone went into Parliament Hill on, in Ottawa. Okay? Again, this is a very imperfect analogy because Parliament Hill is a purely political thing and, and the temple was, was, was religious. But think of it more like if someone went into Parliament Hill, went into the House of Commons in Ottawa and sent a bunch of the MPs out and said, don't make my house a den of robbers. Now, people would say, who gave you the right? Your house? This isn't your house. This is, this is Canada's house, right? This is the government's house. Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? It would be a little bit like that. Imperfect analogy, yes, but it would be a little bit like that. So when he went into the temple, okay, and notice he says, I mean, talk about authority. He calls the temple my house. I just love that. Isn't that great? It is written, my house. And the chief priests are going, what are you talking? Who gave? This is why they're asking him the question in the very next verses. Who gave you the authority? My house? Chucking all the tables over? Driving people out? My house? Who has given you this kind of authority? Their hearts are bad, but their question is, is really not. And of course, it was, after, it was at this moment when the Jewish leaders really became enraged. The, the Pharisees were already enraged. By the way, I'm just going to stop here right now and just give you a little bit of context. This is, this is actually really important, uh, not so much for the message itself, this particular message, but as you read through the Gospels, a little bit of context here. Um, a lot of times when we read these Gospel stories and we read anything about Jewish leaders or priests or anything, we think automatically, a lot of us do, Pharisees. We just think automatically Pharisees because we just lump all the Jewish leaders together as being bad guys, they're all Pharisees. But the thing you have to understand is it, things were a lot more complicated than that. The Pharisees were one group out of many. Um, just for purposes, we'll just oversimplify things vastly here in this message, just to kind of help you get a grasp of it. I'll vastly oversimplify things. There was many more groups than two, but I'll kind of just talk about two groups here now, just for a moment. And this group here that's talking to Jesus is not Pharisees. The thing you have to understand is the Pharisees were not the priests for the most part. Some priests, there, there will have been a few priests who were Pharisees, but the Pharisees were largely a lay movement. They weren't made up of the priests. They were more the common people. In fact, they were quite popular with a lot of the people. Okay? Uh, the Pharisees were like a lay movement. They were more in the synagogues than in the temples. In the towns and the cities, they controlled a lot of the synagogues. And actually, the Pharisee movement started out not as a bad thing. It started off as kind of like a renewal movement, uh, to push the nation back to holiness and holding up God's word and all that sort of stuff. But they were kind of the, for the people. They were big on the Messiah. They were big on, on life after death. They were the ones agitating. We need the Messiah to come back. We need the Messiah to come back. So one of the reasons that Jesus was always running into Pharisees is that most of his followers, that was the sect that was closer to them. That they were the ones that rubbed shoulders the most. But these ones who are talking to Jesus here are not Pharisees. These are the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests, many of them, uh, belong more to the group of the Sadducees. They were aristocrats. They weren't of the people. 
These were the people who had a lot of the political power in Israel. They were the ones who ran the temple, and they saw things very differently from the Pharisees. The Sadducees and Pharisees clashed a lot. The, Sa- the Sadducees and the, and, the, and the priests, that group is much more closely linked together, even though, again, some priests were, would have been Pharisees, um, just because they would have had, you know, they would have leaned that way and said, oh, I like what, what they're about. But the chief priests, for sure, were more to the, to the Sadducees, they did not believe in life after death. I'll even preach a message about that at some, uh, you know, in this series because it comes up. Um, but they also, because they had all the power, because they didn't believe in life after death, they weren't big on the Messiah. They wanted the status quo because they, they were kind of in cahoots with the Romans. In, in, uh, in cahoots. That, that word doesn't get used very much anymore, hey? But it's better than the other thing I could have said, and I, and I did say it in the Saturday night, and I stopped for this morning. But anyway, um, but they were in cahoots with the Romans, and that's how the people viewed them because they didn't want everything messed up. They were secure in their position. They had some power. So as long as the Romans weren't bugged. So they weren't big on the Messiah. They didn't believe in life after death, all this sort of stuff. They just wanted to keep the status quo, keep the peace. And so when Jesus goes into the temple, he's taken on a different group. He's been taken on the Pharisees all along. But when he goes into the temple, this is a whole new ball of wax. And he's taken over the guys. These are the aristocrats. These are the power families. These are the power brokers in Jerusalem. And he publicly, overturning the tables, chucking people out, calling it my house, has challenged the power brokers of Jerusalem. And at this point, I mean, the Pharisees have hated him all along. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the priests, chief priests, do not get along for the most part. But one thing they agree on is they hate Jesus. And at this point now, the chief priests really join in on this hating Jesus thing. And we read that in the, rest of verse, in the rest of chapter 19 here. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people. You see that, that phrase there, principal men of the people. We're talking, these, these are the power breaker, brokers. We're seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So now let's go back to Luke chapter 20. And he's answering them in their question, who gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. He's not intimidated by them. Everybody else, all the other Jews were intimidated by these guys. You, in fact, you'll find other places in the Gospels, people were afraid of these people. Okay? And now these people who hold all the power in terms of the Jewish people, I mean, the Romans are above them, but in terms of Jewish people, they have all the power. And they come and they say, who gave you this authority? And he's in no mood to answer them. This is the king of the universe. He bows to no one. You know, it's, you know it's one of the things I, I, I noticed, uh, I thought about yesterday. You know, it's the one thing you'll never find Jesus. I mean, this is authority. The one thing you'll never find Jesus doing in the Gospels, asking for permission. Isn't that great? The king of the universe doesn't have to ask permission. When he wants to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he says, go to such and such a place and take the donkey. And if he asks you why, don't ask. Just tell him the master has need of it. When he wants a room to have the last supper in, he sends the disciples up ahead, that same thing. He says, just go to such and such a room and tell them I'll be using that room tonight. And they just go and they do it. He's the king of the universe. And now the chief priests and the elders come to him. Most people would be intimidated by them. And they say, tell us who gave you this authority. And he says, first I'm going to ask you a question. And then he asks him this question. Now tell me, verse 4, was the baptism of, of John, that's John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Now, as always, Jesus is incredibly, incredibly clever. He's always in control of the situation. You have to understand what's all going on here. This is a couple of days before Friday. This, this question here is not just some random question. This is pure genius. He's going to die on a Passover. That's Friday. Today is not his day to die. And so he's not going to, on Friday, when it's his day to die, Passover, he's actually going to give them a quote that they can use against him 
to, to crucify him. He's going to give them a quote that they interpret as blasphemy so that they can crucify him. But today is not Friday. So he's not going to give them a quote by which they can want to crucify him today. So instead he throws this question back at them and he says, uh, tell me about John the Baptist. Was his baptism from, from God or was it from, from man? And this is such an ingenious question because the reason it's a genius question, first of all, he's not implicating himself with any potentially blasphemous statements, how they would view it. But instead, by putting the focus on John the Baptist, he's actually putting the focus back on his own divinity. Because what was John the Baptist? Why would he pick John the Baptist? What was John the Baptist's whole purpose in life, in, in terms of his ministry calling? What was his whole calling? To identify Jesus as the Messiah. Isn't that true? To prepare the way of the Lord. So Jesus says, uh, John the Baptist's calling, was that from God or was that from man? Well, now, without him having to say anything that they can interpret as blasphemy, because it's not his day to die, they now have to answer his own question. If they say that John the Baptist's calling was from God, then he's going to say to them, and you'll see this in the passage, then why didn't you believe him? Because John said, I'm the Messiah. And then they've answered his question for him without him having to commit blasphemy. And if they say it's not from God, they won't be able to say that either, and he knows he's got them trapped. Because then the people will stone them. They don't like these guys. And so let's read the rest of this here. I just love how clever he is. And they discuss it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? Right? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so verse 7, and so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this is where I want us to park for just a little bit of time. Neither will I tell you. You know what's really fascinating to me about that statement? This is not the only time it happens in the Gospels. In fact, there are a number of times in the Gospels where Jesus refuses to answer people. And we actually need to stop and take notice of this because I see lots of Christians asking Jesus all kinds of questions and it's good to seek him for wisdom. James says, if you need wisdom, you need to go to God and ask. We should ask God for wisdom. But the fact that God promises to give us wisdom does not mean he always gives us all the information or answers all of our questions. And there are numerous times in, in, in the Gospels where Jesus does, doesn't answer. Sometimes it's the wrong question. Sometimes it's the wrong heart. We saw already with Pilate. Pilate's peppering him with questions. He, I'm not going to answer you. Herod, he goes before Herod. I'm not going to answer you. Chief priest, I'm not going to answer you. I can show you examples with the disciples. I'm going to show you a, uh, an example at the end of this message with John the Baptist. Neither will I tell you. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And sometimes as Christians, we forget that and we rage against him and get bitter. Why am I going through this? Why, why, why? He's not telling me, and we get bitter. Why do I have to go through this? Why are you doing this to me? He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and he actually is not obligated to tell us why. He also won't often tell us all the details of his plans. He will often not tell us all the things that are about to happen. He will sometimes, when we're asking him the wrong questions, just say, actually, I'm not going to tell you even exactly what to do in this situation. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I think of the story in Mark chapter 8, but for sure, one thing I want to talk about, because there's many different reasons why 
uh, he doesn't answer. But the, the, the main one I want to talk about is just having a hard heart. When, pe- when we go to God, when people go to God with a hard heart, then heaven often becomes like brass. And you go to him and you ask him questions and nothing comes back. And uh, one great example I think of that I wanted to bring up here is Mark chapter 8. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and demand a sign from him to prove who he is. And let's go look at that one. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking, a sign from, uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, you say, why, wait a minute. Why wouldn't Jesus give them a sign? If he just gives them a sign, they're going to follow him. Why wouldn't Jesus just give them a little sign? He's been doing all kinds of miracles. Why wouldn't he just give them a sign and then they would follow him? No, they wouldn't. You know what's so ironic about this passage? You know what's so ironic about this passage? The verses right before this verse, you know what the story is? Jesus feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Is that not sign enough? He feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, and right after that, the Pharisees say, come and show us a sign to prove who you are. And Jesus says, absolutely not. I've already given you more than enough. You want to know, you want to know the truth? There is never enough proof for a hard heart. There's never enough proof for a hard heart. You know, a lot of, uh, the, now, nowadays in our culture, whether on the internet or in books and stuff, there's lots of atheists that, who rage against God, and they talk about this, uh, if God would only show me proof, if God would only do a miracle, then I would believe in him. If God would only do this, if God would only show himself to me, then I would believe in him. And sometimes Christians, and I know I've, I've been through this when I was younger, sometimes we wonder too, like, why doesn't God give more proof? Maybe God, maybe they have something. And we wonder why God wouldn't give them more proof. The fact of the matter is, he's already given us more than enough proof. We have more than enough proof right here in this room to convince us that there must be a God. There are, there is scads of proof right here in this room, right now, that there must be a God. Did you know that? For example, I want you just to, to, to pull out your hand. Now, pull out. I guess that suggests it was in your pocket, but wherever it is, just put, put your hand out in front of you. Can you do that with me? Just put your hand out in front of you. Can you all do that? Just see if you're, you're, you're awake there. Put your hand out in front of you and just, just move it around. Now, I did some, some meditating on the human hand this weekend. It's amazing to me. You know, if you ever have a bad day where you don't think you have anything to be thankful for, start by thanking God for your hands. Have you ever thought about how amazing your hands are? Your hands are incredible. There are 27 or 29 bones in your hand, depending on who's counting. Now, that's a little weird to me. (laughs) Is it 27 or is it 29? But different people, they argue about it. So I just have to put both. I'm not expert enough to figure out who's right. But there's 27 or 29 bones in your hand. There's 34 muscles, 34 different muscles. It's amazing. And 48 nerves. Just in one hand. Think of all the different movements you have in your hand. Now, some of you are still wondering, really? We can be thankful for our hand? You just take your hand for granted. Let me, let me take a moment here to help you not take your hand for granted. Okay? Did you know that right now, and for a number of years already, engineers and scientists around the world have poured tens of millions of dollars 
into trying to design a robotic hand that can do the things that can match up and do the same things that a human hand does? In fact, the Pentagon, how many of you know what the Pentagon is? You know what the Pentagon is? Not all of you, really? It's a really big building with five sides in the United States. They have a limitless budget and they design fighter planes and bombs and missiles and all those sorts of things. And they have, that I mentioned, they have a limitless, essentially, budget of billions of dollars. You know, in 2016, the Pentagon has for years been trying, spending millions of dollars, and this is just one place, trying to design a robotic hand that can, and I don't know why. <laughs> they're going to go into, into war with these robotic hands and just grab hold of people, but anyway, they're... Uh, they're trying to design this robotic hand that can do what your hand can do. And so in 2016, they had this big breakthrough. They made a robotic hand, a pair of robotic hands that could change a tire. Almost. Tens of millions of dollars. By the way, for those of you who are judging me right now, I have changed a tire, just so you know. Because <laughs> you're saying your hands can't even do that. My hands have changed a tire, okay? And my wife's here, she can tell you that. I don't like to do it, and I hope I never have to do it again, but I have done it. So tens of millions of dollars, they make these robotic hands that can change a tire. That's what the article says. Can change a tire, except not quite. Tens of millions of dollars, and you know what those robotic hands could not do? Thread a nut onto a bolt. <laughs> tens of millions of dollars, and these big robotic hands that look nasty can't even thread a nut onto a bolt. A four-year-old can do that. <laughs> or at, least some four at least they can throw the, the bolt at you or, or something. <laughs> but they can do a lot. They can thread a nut on a bolt. And you go, what? They can't, tens of millions of dollars, they can't make a hand that's as good as your hand. You know what, you know what one of their goals is now? They want to make a hand that can, wait for it, this is really breaking, breaking news, that can open a zipper, put its hand into a pocket, and take something out by touch. Your two-year-old's been doing that in your purse, right, women, for years, <laughs> right? And, and they're spending tens of millions of dollars to make a hand that can open a zipper and pick something out by touch. The next time you're having a bad day, I want you to look at your hands and just realize you've got tens of millions of dollars worth of engineering right here. <laughs> and you say, what on earth does that have to do with this message? I'll tell you what it has to do. It has to do with everything. How could, if, they, with ten, if the smartest people in the world, engineers in the world, are spending tens of millions of dollars trying to replicate your hand, and they can't do it. How on earth could anybody ever believe that this was put together by accident? If the smartest people in the world spend tens of millions of dollars trying to make a hand that isn't as good as yours, that you were just born with, how on earth could we ever believe that this hand was put together by accident? I mean, if you saw a robotic, if we brought a robotic hand out here on a stage and had it play the drums or pick something up, nobody would go, wow. And you just went into the factory one day and it was there. The bolts just kind of fell and you shook something and out came a robotic hand. You would never think that. There is so much proof. There must be a higher engineer out there somewhere. Amen? But it's not just your hand. I told you there's tons of proof in this room. I'll just give you one more. We could go on and on and on. Have you ever thought about your eyes? You're going to now. <laughs> I got a picture of an eye up there, right? Can you, can you guys put that, that, the eye up there? Did you know that your eye is an incredible thing? I'm glad we don't see the insides of them all the time, but your eye is an amazing thing. I looked up some eye statistics. 
This first statistic I didn't even believe. I had to look it up in a whole bunch of different places and then try to figure out what exactly they were all talking about. But the Canadian Optometrist Association says there are two million working parts, in e over two million working parts in your eyes. And I'm like, what? Two million? And I, what I basically figured out is they might, and, but that, that stat gets quote, in, quoted in a whole bunch of, uh, of, uh, of places. So uh, what I figured by the end was uh, they must be referring to the fact that each eye, one eye and then the second eye, your right eye and your left eye, each eye has more than a million nerve fibers connecting your eye to your brain. That's how much information is, is going in there, more than, more than a million. In fact, there is, it's so complex that the eye is one of the only parts of your body that can't be transplanted. I mean, I did a little research on transplants too. I learned a lot of biology this week. But uh, they can transplant a whole bunch of things in the human body. I was in shock. I mean, they can transplant uh, hearts and livers and pancreases. I'm not even sure what that does. They can transplant uh, veins and skin and on and on and on. Lungs, they can transplant your lungs. They can do all, they can transplant. You can basically be like a, like a really old used car and have all fake parts in you now and fake knees, fake hips, fake everything. And some of you have a lot of these already, but anyway. And, uh, but they can do all that, but they can't transplant your eye. Way, way too, way too complicated. The, the eyes, and you say, well, what does the eye all do? It's, it's not just a, 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 a camera. The, eye, the, the muscles in your eye, there's a bunch of little muscles in your eye that are working constantly to adjust the shape of your eye lens so that you can focus on different things. Now, I'm sure most of you at some point in your life has used a set of binoculars. And isn't it true that binoculars are always just a little bit awkward to use? So if I want to look at something way over there, you know, you take out your binoculars, and then I want to look over there. First, you've got to try and find the thing, right? And, okay, yeah, and then you get it, you get it in your viewfinder, and then you got, <laughs> with the lens, right, to kind of get it focused. It takes a few seconds, for sure. It's awkward. Now, can you imagine if your eyes were like binoculars? Can you imagine how awesome that would be? Every time I want to look, so I want to look at someone in the back row there, and it's like, focus in, I can see you. And now I want to look down at my notes. And everywhere I want to go, do you, your eye, I'm focusing at different ranges all the time, so are you. The whole time you are awake, the muscles in your eye, subconscious, you don't even think about it. You're not, there's no dials on the side of your forehead that you've got to dial in. I just want to look over there, and I see Brad Elias, I just see him. I want to look over there and I see my daughter Joy. I want to look at my notes here. Boom, I can just look and my subconsciously, those muscles just move, make the lens the exact shape and focus in and give my brain an image. It's absolutely spectacular. It's absolutely spectacular. And again, when we come to thankfulness, the next time you're having a bad day, just again, look at your hand and then recognize I'm looking at it. My hand is moving, I'm looking at it. This is incredible. And nobody, you know, the amazing thing is, I mean, look at, how, look at how wonderfully made that eye is. Now, how on earth could something like that have come together by evolution, step by step? You know, you know, what the, you know what one of the biggest things, and by the way, I've gone to university, I've looked. I have never seen an atheist, an evolutionist, or anyone give a reasonable explanation. In fact, most of them don't even try. For how an eye could be built step by step by step. Because remember how evolution works. Every step, this whatever it is that's evolving is getting a little better than before, 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 a little better than before until you have something that's really, really good. Except the only problem with the eye is there's no set of stages where it gets better and better and better and better. If I take one piece out of that eye, 
it doesn't work. It's not like if I take one piece out, it works a little bit less good. If I take a piece out, it stops working at all. So there's no level of progression. There's no level, we start with blood vessels. And we have a little bit of eyesight. No, with blood vessels, you have no eyesight. And then after the blood vessels, we evolve an optic disc. And now we see a little better. None of it works until it's all together at once. Which is an incredibly powerful argument against evolution. And again, the point is, when people say, I would believe in God if he gave me more proof. The fact of the matter is, God has given us far more than enough evidence to see that there must be a master engineer, a higher power out there somewhere that put this all together. Amen? So when atheists in the world rage at God and say, we would believe in him if he gave us enough proof, the thing you have to understand is, it means actually, no, they wouldn't. No amount of proof would be enough when this amount of proof isn't. And you say, well, why doesn't God just physically show himself to people? I'll tell you why. He's given us more than enough proof to believe in him. But he's also hidden himself just enough that anybody who wants to not believe in him can convince themselves otherwise. It's about the heart. It's not about the evidence. It's about the heart. He's hidden himself just enough so that people who don't want to believe in him can. Well, this truth, though, isn't just for people with hard hearts. It's not just for atheists. We need to remember this as well when we ask questions of Jesus. The whole point of this passage is authority. Jesus does not have to answer every question we ask him. He loves us. He loves you. He loves when we come to him for wisdom. But wisdom is a different thing than just answers. Sometimes the best wisdom is just learning to trust and be quiet. But I see too many Christians who are raging, who are asking God all these questions. Why isn't God answering? Or neurotic. I'm asking God what to do. I'm asking God what to do. I'm asking God what to do. I'm not hearing him. Maybe I'm not listening right. You know what? It's not about technique anyway. If God wants to talk to you and you have a good heart and you're trying to listen to him, you will hear. So if you're not hearing anything, let go of all the stress and trust. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe and he will speak when the time is right if we have a good heart. And so I want to one last Luke, John the Baptist story here and then we'll pray. It's just a quick one. But if we go back to Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist gives us another example where Jesus doesn't always ask, answer our questions the way we would like him to. And uh, John has been thrown into prison. And remember how confident John was that Jesus was the Messiah. He shouted out to the crowds, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now he's rotting in one of Herod's prisons. And no doubt he went into that prison. I mean, John was bold. He went into that prison and he's like, I'm standing strong. But he's probably thinking, I mean, he knows who the Messiah is. Just like the disciples, he's expecting him to set up his kingdom on earth. Jesus is going to rescue me. I've been faithful. I proclaimed him as the Messiah. I know he's the king of the universe. He's going to come and rescue me. And then he sits in jail and rots in jail and rots and rots and rots. And suddenly the most incredible thing happens. This John, who is the most confident man in the world that he knew who Jesus was, is suddenly doubting everything he thought he knew. Have you ever been there? When things get dark, you were confident when things were easy and light. But when things got dark, suddenly you start to doubt. God's promises, who God is, does he love me, all these sorts of things. Well, John the Baptist was a human being just like us. 
And he begins to doubt. And we pick up the story, Luke 7, verse 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, again, I've talked about this passage before. This is an incredible question coming from John. This is John, who in his mother's womb, when pregnant with Jesus Mary, walks into the room, John, in his own mother, Elizabeth's womb, it says, leaped. He already knew Jesus was the Messiah before he was born. This is the John that when Jesus came to be baptized, he shouted to the crowds, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the John who saw the Holy Spirit descend from heaven onto Jesus. This is the John who, after Jesus' baptism, heard the Father's voice thunder from heaven. Behold my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He knows who Jesus is. He knows, knows, knows. And yet in prison, things have not turned out the way he expected. This isn't how it was supposed to turn out. I know who Jesus is. This has not turned out the way I expected. And he begins to doubt everything. He begins to doubt everything. And it's very interesting to me, Jesus' response. Again, Jesus does not directly John, answer John's question. I'll show you that in just in a moment. He doesn't tell John why. He doesn't say, John, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. He doesn't, he doesn't tell him that. He doesn't tell him why. He doesn't tell him details. He doesn't even give him a promise of rescuing him because he's not going to rescue him. In fact, what Jesus does do is very interesting, and I think it's important that we end this message here because I think it's the same thing he often does for us. And he says this is the response he gives to John, verse 21. In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Notice he's healing all these other people, but he's not healing John. He's not rescuing John. And on many who are blind, by the way, have you ever been there too? You're praying and praying and praying for something and other people are celebrating because they got the answer to prayer you've been looking for. That's how John's feeling here. He's in jail. Everybody else is getting their prayers answered by Jesus except for him. And on many who are blind, he bestowed sight and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor of good news preached to them. John knows all that. He saw Jesus doing miracles. He knew Jesus was doing all this stuff. What has Jesus done here? Jesus has just pointed John back to what he already knows. I think often as Christians, we're demanding something new from God. I need a new promise to get me through this. What are you doing, Jesus? I need new affirmation. I need new confirmation. I need new this. I need new revelation, new information. I need new, new, new all the time to keep me going. And sometimes Jesus says, actually, I'm the king of the universe, and it's time for you to grow up. I gave you a word a year ago, and my word is as good as gold. Go back and hold on to what I already gave you. I gave you a word two years ago. I gave you a word six months ago. Go back and hold on to that word. Hold on to it like it's your life, because my word is good. And he tells us to go back and to hold on. And then he says this, final thing, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's easy. He's not talking to a non-believer here. He's talking to John the Baptist. Blessed is the one who's not offended to me. It is easy. I see lots of Christians get offended with Jesus. I see lots of Christians get offended with God because they don't get the answers. They don't know why they're going through this. They ask why and they don't get an answer. They don't know why would God make me go through this? Why would God allow me to go through this? And they're upset. Why isn't God answering my prayer to change this? And instead of trusting the Lord, 
we ask why and we get bitter. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe and he has a plan for your life. And in heaven, that plan includes never any pain or crying again. But here on earth, his plan includes pain and crying and stress and some of those dark valleys of the shadow of death. And so the choice before us, when we hit these moments, and Jesus isn't answering all the information we've asked him for, the choice is, are we going to trust what he's already told us? Are we going to trust his goodness and the promises he's given us in the past, or are we going to get bitter with him? And Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended with me. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. And I want us just to ask the Lord. Someone much smarter than me once said, don't doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. Don't doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. Some of you are here today and you've been asking God a lot of why questions and he hasn't been answering them. And Jesus is asking you this morning to let go of those whys and trust him. Some of you have been panicking. You've been asking Jesus for all kinds of information. What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And you're afraid you haven't been listening right. And Jesus is saying, trust me. Uh, just keep seeking me and I will lead you in the right moment. Sometimes we've got to learn to trust him in the dark. He is the sovereign king of the universe and he's got you in his hands. Our job is just to trust and to obey. So Jesus, we come to you this morning and we lift up to you our stresses and our fears and our hurts. And we choose to trust that you are going to get us through. And we choose to say we are going to obey you because you are our king. You are the authority. You have authority intrinsic to yourself because you are our God. And so we thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do as we trust you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.